Hey there, I'm Christopher Schoenwald, and welcome to Life As A, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. Hey, how are you doing? Before we get started today, I do have a favor to ask of all of you. I did start a channel over on YouTube in the last year, year and a half or so, And yeah, I'm really trying to promote that. And the reason being is I think the content that I'm putting out here, you know, we're doing all right with some of these guests for coming on. And I think it deserves to be put in front of more people. And one of the best ways, of course, of doing that is through a platform like YouTube. Now, if you do interact with these videos on YouTube, that algorithm loves it. And that's the only way that it knows to continually share that content, put it in front of more people. So yeah, I could be a little bit biased here, but I think, you know, finding out about some of these careers is great for young people. It's great for mid-career professionals. So yeah, like, subscribe, it would help a ton. All right, well, let's get into this episode today. You know, I've got to say, I've been really, really fortunate to have spoken with a number of people that are truly making a difference in this world. You know, whether we're considering environmental or social impact or otherwise, yeah, I've spoken with a number of people that are doing some pretty wonderful things. However, with that stated, this next guest, I don't know if I've spoken to somebody on his level. Let me fill you in really quickly. His name is John Atkinson, and he works for the Ontario Public Health Association. Basically, it's a nonprofit organization that works with government, public health, and healthcare professionals with an aim on preventing illness and improving health outcomes. They provide scientific evidence and expert guidance that ultimately shapes policy and practices for the province of Ontario within Canada. And I might add that province is the largest in Canada with a population just under 15 million people. So, yeah, the opportunity to create positive impact is certainly there, and that's what John and his team are keyed in on doing every single day. But beyond that, I mean, John himself has been centered within this line of work, you know, driving organizations related to other particular public health outcomes. I mean, he was working for the Canadian Cancer Society, and in particular, he was charged with tobacco control. Yeah, that was a big one, in addition to a number of other initiatives, too. However, in getting back to his work with the OPHA, the Ontario Public Health Association, we get into his role as executive director. You know, what has that been like? You know, what he does on a daily basis, some of the challenges, some of the rewards. We also rewind a little bit. He speaks about this overseas trip at the age of 16 and how that completely opened up new perspectives on the world and a lot of professional opportunities that he wanted to explore. We also get into his takes on handling some of these gargantuan responsibilities he's had over the course of his career, as well as what he's doing within the OPHA. And even we touch on subjects such as managing online pushback, you know, fair or otherwise, to some of the policies or recommendations that the OPHA puts forward, and also how they handle or how they view misinformation online. And then finally, we even have a look at AI and technology and how some of the tools offered within that realm can actually help or perhaps find new avenues to explore as an organization 
and finding better and more efficient ways to get their messages across to the public. I mean, all up, this conversation covers a lot of ground, super, super interesting stuff, so I hope you enjoy it. Anyway, let me more formally introduce you to him, and we can get started. John Atkinson is the executive director of the OPHA, Ontario Public Health Association, a nonprofit organization with a mission keyed in on providing leadership on issues affecting the public's health and strengthening the impact of people who are active in public and community health throughout Canada's largest province. Now, John has a master's of social work and has a wealth of experience as far as leading health promotion programs and policy initiatives in a number of settings, including university health services, public health, community health, and two health nonprofits prior to joining the OPHA. Not to be overlooked, John has also led a number of community development, health promotion, and child development initiatives overseas. Rewinding a bit, John began his career as a smoking cessation counselor in 1998 and a health educator at Region of Waterloo Public Health. In 2006, John was presented with the Provincial Smoke-Free Champion Award and a nominee for the Heather Crow Award in 2015 for his work in tobacco control. As a result of John's extensive work regarding youth health, John was awarded the Order of Niagara. Before joining OPHA, John worked at the Canadian Cancer Society, CCS, for 10 years, where he served as the Vice President of Cancer Prevention, leading all prevention initiatives across a number of areas, including tobacco control, healthy eating, physical activity, alcohol, and ultraviolet radiation. He also developed strategic partnerships and strategies aimed to reduce health inequities and increase access to supportive environments and services among diverse communities. John is a committed advocate and leader within the public, community, and health promotion sectors and is excited to work in collaboration with the public and community health communities to strengthen and grow their impact. So with all that stated, here's my conversation with John Atkinson. Yeah, so welcome to the program. How are you doing, John? I'm good, Chris. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, really excited for this for a lot of different reasons. But uh, I do have this first segment lined up for us already, something called Coloring Wikipedia. As my listeners know, it's a segment where I just read off a definition of what the guest does or, or topic related to their profession. Now, I put you down here for public health. Does that sound all right? Sure. Sounds great. Here we go. Public health. Public health is the science and art of preventing disease, prolonging life, and promoting health through the organized efforts and informed choices of society, organizations, public and private, through communities and individuals. Analyzing the determinants of health of a population and the threats it faces is the basis for public health. The public can be as small as a handful of people or as large as a village or an entire city. In the case of a pandemic, it may encompass several continents. Concepts of health take into account physical, psychological, and social well-being. There it is. First take, what do you think of that? It's okay. It's okay. I mean, it's really broad, right? So I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges of working in public health is really getting across to folks, what does it encompass? What does it mean? Like when I hear... It's physical, social, psychological. What does that even mean in terms of 
Exactly. Yeah. So, but it's got some, like your definition has some good things like disease prevention and all levels of society, public, private organization. So there's things that I like, all those are kind of relevant. Sometimes people wonder, or they think about public health as an organization or set of organizations. Oh, like I need to check my child's vaccination. So I'm going to call public health, right? Or there's a smog advisory, and I want to know if my elderly parent can go out or is going to risk their their COPD. So I'm going to call public health. But it's so much bigger than that. It's like it's it's how we actually create communities and societies that benefit and support the public's health. So it's called public health, but it's really about supporting the public's health. So it's how do, how do we get everybody who lives in a place, in a country, in a city, in a town, you know, your definition had it, villages, communities, whatever the size is, a community within a city, how do you get them to a place where they're supported to be able to be healthy? And so what does that include? We're, we're going to get into this, but could you give me an example really quickly of, of, of one way just to kind of crystallize that? Yeah. For listeners? yeah. So what does it look like, right? Like, what does it look like? What does it mean? And so I think public health can be anything from like design of a community and how walkable it is and how accessible transportation is. It can be how safe is the water that people drink or when they go out to eat, how safe is the food that they eat? It can represent policies that shape the communities that people live in. So how available or accessible are illicit drugs or legalized drugs like alcohol or tobacco or cannabis that people can access? How supportive are the communities in terms of what your definition addressed, which was the determinants of health? What are the determinants of health? There are things like income, education, employment, housing, all of those things actually play a bigger role in determining health than did I eat my five servings of veggies or did I go for a longer walk today or that kind of thing. So how do we create supportive environments that that deals with the underpinnings of health? So making sure that people have sustainable livelihoods and then they're actually supported in eating healthy like getting accessible and affordable food. So public health is all of those things, you know, from programs, services, policies, it encompasses so much. So how do we actually inform the public about what we do? And because a lot of it's behind the scenes. And yeah, you don't know about it until something goes wrong. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, And that's not usually the good time you want to be engaging with people about no. what public health does, right? So. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, it's certainly a, a broad, broad mandate, and uh, I know we're going to get into this later, but uh, yeah, I'm quite excited to, to hear your perspectives on this. I mean, having that one level of responsibility is a big one for, for any leader who's in charge of something like this, but then also for the, the teams that you're working with. Yeah, there, there must be some moments where some daunting challenges present themselves. But again, we're going to get into that within the course of this conversation. But I think that add on to this definition really helps crystallize it for me. Even when I was preparing for this interview, I kind of had to, to, to sit back and contemplate, well, what does this really mean? And, and I was just going through that, that definition myself and trying to make sense of it. But uh, 
what you just shared there really does kind of bring it down to a level that uh, I think it makes it much more accessible. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. Well, maybe before we get into some of those things I was alluding to, we could slide into this other segment, a day in the life. And this probably is going to add a little bit more clarity to it. But uh, I'd be curious to hear about what kinds of roles and responsibilities that uh, you're, you're involved with. Like, what, what, what takes up the most amount of your time within a day and perhaps the least? So you mean like aside from long leisurely walks at lunch and afternoons? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. And telling all of your staff to be doing that as well, yes. That's right. That's right. Just, just like taking it easy and chilling out. Yeah. So a day in the life, pretty action-packed for me, which, no, seriously. Like it's, and it's funny because you know, my kids who are around, they come in at lunch and they come after school and they see me sitting in this chair, the same chair all day long. I'm working from home and I do get out. So that's good. You know, I do get out for some exercise and I do have some friends, like believe it or not, but (laughs) it's very action packed. So I get the great pleasure and privilege of working with a whole slew of health professionals in both community and public health. And that ranges from nurses and their lead and nursing leaders, public health inspectors, librarians, dental professionals, dietitians, epidemiologists, researchers. Like it goes on. Diverse group. Yeah. And we're an association. So we represent the views of those working on the front lines in public health and community health. So What's really cool about it is I'm often, you ask where I invest my time. I'm meeting and I'm reading and I'm getting informed about what are the needs at a community level, at a provincial level, at a countrywide level in terms of what's going to support people to be healthy. I'm also learning about what are the gaps in the system. So, you know, in Canada, there is such a a shortage of all sorts of health professionals. So we know that human health resources are a real problem and challenge right now. The workforce is strained coming out of the pandemic. People have left many professions. There's been turnover. And then I learn and I collaborate with these folks about how can we actually make it better? So what are the policies? What's the advocacy we need, we need to do? What's the research or the reports that we need to create that will help decision makers make better decisions and address gap. So that's, you know, that's kind of part of what I do. It's a big part, I'd say. I mean, that, that sounds like a fairly involved aspect of your work. It is. You're it synthesizing is. a lot of these different opinions and ideas and, and, and taking that information and bringing it together in such a way to present to somebody else to perhaps move this project forward or this initiative forward. I mean, that, that unto itself would seem like a full-time job, just that, but sorry, continue. Yeah, yeah no, you're right. It's big. And I think, you know, such as public health and such as health is that there are so many players and so many ways that health are impacted and so many needs. There's no, no shortage of needs or challenges. So then, yeah, it's figuring out how, how do you understand those needs, package them in a way that makes sense, that's informed by research and the evidence, and then take them to the decision maker. So that's kind of like the second part of my big part of my job is I get to like meet with elected officials and civil servants and, you know, leaders, thought leaders and influencers who are making a difference in health and, and then bring these solutions or advocate. Sometimes it's advocating and saying, 
you know, that's not really going to be good for people's health. Or here is a healthy public policy and how we can solve a problem. So, so that's kind of cool too. It's the striving for change that I think is most rewarding and can't do it alone. So that means I get to spend my days surrounded by really talented, smarter than me people who, uh, who, you know, give me the, the, the ideas, the needs, and we work together and try and move agendas forward. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Crossing paths with so many different types of people can be inspiring. I mean, that's one of the things that I can attest to within this program. It's, it's really interesting. And, and you learn, you're constantly learning lots of different things. And it sounds like that would be the case for you as well. And add on this extra layer of the, the, the activities that you're you know, you're working on are wholesome in nature. They're, they're aimed at the betterment of society, right? Of people's lives. So, you know, I, I do have a question I think we're going to get into later, like the meaningfulness of all this for you. But uh, I can see early on, like, and just my assumption that I assume it wouldn't be that difficult to, to attach a certain level of fulfillment from the work that you're doing. For sure. Well, I think that that gives a nice idea of, of what, you know, some of the main tasks that you are charged with. And I was thinking here that maybe we could slide into this other segment. It's a segment called Pathways. And oftentimes, from my experience on this program, a lot of the, the guests, when they share their background, their history of how they ended up in their current day profession, there's often a lot of zigging and zagging, left-hand turns, right-hand turns. Now, off the top, I did mention to listeners you know, your background briefly, but I think it'd still be interesting to hear from you how you ended up in public health. Yeah, so... I mean, so many influences make you choose certain paths, et cetera. And, uh, I think, you know, I think many days, like, what do I, I want to do when I grow up? But, uh, you know, we're forced at a younger age to figure out, like, oh, this is what you're going to do in life. And I would say probably, you know, Malcolm Gladwell termed the tipping point. The tipping point for me uh, was a very key opportunity I had in, uh, in university. And if you had known me in university, you would have known that I was significantly heavier and not terribly healthy. I was a up to two pack a day smoker up to my third year of university. And I always said, so I was very addicted to tobacco. And, uh, and I always said that I would, you know, if something better came along. And at the time, I think it was like, if I met a girl who was like, I am not okay with you smoking, I'll quit. I'll turn my life around. So I happened to be looking for a part-time job at the time. And uh, I still didn't know what I really wanted to do with my life. And this position came up at Student Health Services in their wellness center. And it was for a campus coordinator of a program called Leave the Pack Behind. And it was a smoking cessation and tobacco prevention program on campus, not just with students, but with staff. And you had to be a non-smoker. Your first challenge, I suppose, in <laughs> doing something like that. Well, I looked at it and I was like, okay, like I want to do this. This seems so cool. You're making a difference. It was different than going in and serving food, like at, you know, at one of the local like food establishments on campus. And and it really fit with what I was looking for in life, which was how do, how do I, you know, how do I work with people and how do I work for a cause for the betterment of people? And uh, which, you know, it's kind of hokey and uh, but but it fit that that's what I was driven to do and what I wanted to do. And and so I, I like within a day, I quit smoking 
So I had, you know, two packs a day. I had smoked for uh, probably just a bit over five years. That's unbelievable, John. Yeah, so I quit smoking and then I got working on my resume and I submitted my resume and I interviewed twice. And in the interview, they asked me, do you have any experience, you know, with tobacco in your life? Like, is it informing? And I'm like, well, as a matter of fact, I do. So I so I told them that I had recently quit smoking, that I'd struggled for years, that I had tried many, many different times and many different ways to quit smoking, cold turkey, pharmaceutical aid, therapy, like counseling, all sorts of, you know, my family offered me money to quit smoking. There were so many different ways because ideally I didn't really want to be a smoker. And I got the job. So that became like that. There are many influences, but that's kind of the one transformative change in my life where I then started down a path of working in health promotion. I was uh, providing counseling to staff and students on how to quit smoking. I was doing prevention kinds of initiatives, which were campus wide. I was collaborating with with province wide teams on strategy across campuses. And it really captured my excitement for what could be done prevention work, disease prevention work. And I mean, in terms of my career, I've always done health promotion. So it's been 1999. So, so like 24 years. That's where it all kicked off. I did that quit smoking. Yeah. Yeah. You did mention there that, you know, you, I think you said as, as hokey as it sounds, as far as, you know, being driven by this idea or this notion of, helping society and the, the betterment of society. How did those ideas take shape? You could tell me a little bit about that. Was that something like nudging within your family or maybe somebody like a, a role model within your family? This was just, where, where, where did that evolve? So in my family, I came from a long line of lawyers, a couple of judges. So that was the expectation I grew up with. My parents had moved here. Both were, did not get a post-secondary education. So we'd gone from very educated individuals in my family from the Caribbean. So my family is from the Caribbean and they moved to Canada for as many newcomers do for a better life, better life for their children, education, opportunity, et cetera. And so I was pretty much funneled towards law and and or business. Like business would be like a second, like a second fallback. And so I applied for business and I got a full scholarship it's Canada Trust Community Scholarship to go into business. I would have had a job every summer. And uh, I, at the age of 16, had the opportunity to go overseas to Dominican Republic and to work with a youth group there to paint and repair and reopen a school that had closed, preventing many children from being able to, uh, to go to school. And that transformed my life. Opened it right up. Yeah, it totally blew it up. It blew it up. It turned my like whole perception of privilege and you know developed versus developing nations and like you know just just how lucky and privileged I was to be born where I was from the family that I was and it kind of changed my outlook on life a lot and so while I didn't tell my parents I waited to the last minute before I was to start university in business <laughs> and two weeks before I was to start. I told my parents, I'm not going. 
I don't know what I want to do, but I want to help people. Like I want to make, it's not this, it's not not that. that. Yeah. Yeah, It's not that it's not making money. And that was what had been kind of programmed into me that that was success. And, um, and so it kind of started there. And then I took that year to really explore what the heck could I do with my life? It wasn't health promotion at the time, but it was like, you know, there are all these different kinds of ways you can help. Right. Sort of broader sort of ideas of at least having that idea of like, well, I want to help people. In what capacity, it's still undecided, but but this is my guiding light. This is this is the wind of my sails, if you will, you know, and, and, and how that sorts itself out, you know, you can kind of figure that out along the way. I think that's what a lot of people do. But as long as you have that that broad sort of idea of where you'd like to be heading, you know, you put yourself out there enough, which you certainly did, the opportunities just sort of come about. And I think when talking about careers, a bit of serendipity in there as well. And before you know it, uh, things evolve the way that they do. They do. And uh, with that in mind, I do have some other questions for you here. And we can jump into this other segment here, Q&A Discovery. We can continue this back and forth. Again, I think I'd mentioned this not too long ago. You know, some of the, the, the roles that you've been within, you know, you've had some fairly gargantuan tasks, you know, in, in front of you. Some perhaps daunting ones at times, I'm thinking at least. You know, for example, uh, what tobacco control uh, at one point, you know, uh, you're charged with the responsibilities associated with that and, and informing the public for a population of just under 15 million people. Like that is certainly no joke. Or having an executive role with the Canadian Cancer Society and all that you're charged with within that position, you know, as far as scale and certainly the importance of that work. I'd love to know how you approach that, maybe at least initially, some of those those responsibilities, those jobs themselves, and, and how you grew from them as well, from those experiences. Uh, it's interesting to hear it framed that way, because I think when you're in it, you kind of, at times, you lose sight of how big the objectives and the goals are. Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, many times in my career, I've thought to myself, you know, what if? Or what if I had just picked an area of health even or an area of social betterment and just worked in that area? Like maybe if it was just tobacco, working in, you know, reducing or virtually eliminating tobacco use all of my career. And I have spent a lot of time doing that, working in that field. How much easier would it be to do that? And I'm not sure it would be easier, but the way that it kind of happened in my career is just opportunities for big portfolios, big scope, big teams, nationwide, province-wide, wherever they might be. And I think what really, I think for me, there's always been a tension between how can you have and how can you make the biggest societal change or impact possible with, do you have the time, energy, resources to be able to tackle all of those big, hairy, audacious goals? Like, And I think there's always been that tension. And I think I've always fallen back on being inspired by, you know, the challenge of those big goals and and opportunities. I've always seen them as opportunities. And so I think your question is like, how how do you kind of approach those or how do you like, how do you deal with? Exactly. I mean, I I think there's it's it's one thing to say that yeah you're attracted to these things. But for example, okay yes then you land those positions, you get into these executive leadership roles, and then they they throw it on your desk and say, all right, John, this is what we're faced with. This is what we need to do. And I mean, I'm assuming at least, 
anyone probably be a bit wide-eyed when they, they they survey all that needs to be done and certainly the, the level of importance and significance of some of these tasks or challenges put in front of you. What was that like initially? Or, or were you just steel-eyed and like, yeah, all right, well, this is what we need to do. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah, no, I, I think there's probably a few themes throughout my career. One is a feeling of overwhelm. But assume, I think that's natural, right? Yeah, and getting discouraged just by like, the, the breadth and weight of how, how many things go wrong or you, know, you take three steps forward in one area and then, you know, let's say a politician, a different politician gets gets elected and they take two steps back or they change the policies so hard. So I think overwhelm is for sure one. If I think about my sh- like shoes off self, my natural tendency, it would be like free flowing and easygoing and you know, creative processes and unhinged, unencumbered kind of like out of the box thinking and all the things that would make organized people extremely annoyed with me. I would say, so the first thing I learned early in my career was good planning. So taking those really big, hairy, audacious goals and frankly, breaking them down into smaller goals and plan, developing plans around them. And so that, like my planning skills, even though it's totally not my natural tendency, I've learned them. And so that's been super duper helpful. Like I cannot tell you how much those planning skills have helped. But then without really smart, again, much smarter than me, talented, uh, capable, competent staff, colleagues, partners, working with all of those people. Like in the, in the realm of health, you can't do it alone. And if you think you're going to do it alone, you're going to be alone in all of your efforts because everybody tends to work together because these health problems, societal issues, et cetera, are very complex. And so you are, you know, you are stronger together than you are individually. So I think that's also been kind of refreshing in my career is working with other partners to tackle big problems makes it easier. Like it makes it seem less, seem less daunting. You've got the hive mind. You've got the collective resources of all of these partners. You know, when I was at the cancer, Canadian Cancer Society, Heart and Stroke and the Ontario Medical Association, you know, partners like Diabetes or the Canadian Partnership Against Cancer, all of those organizations, when you work together in collaboration with like objectives or aligned objectives, yeah, you can align plans and do do some amazing things. So I think that has been, you know, a couple of the ways. But ultimately, Chris, there's never enough resources. There's never enough time. There's never enough energy. So you're always kind of playing that, like, either keep your head above water or or trying to, to stay ahead of other things that are undermining your So Okay, okay. Well, I like that point of, of planning and structure. Uh, you know, that's certainly going to see how that would be a very useful skill to have within the, the, the line of work that you do, but also that, that point of teams too, and having strong teams around you. And oftentimes we, we hear this for any large organizations, it comes down to the people. But another aspect to it as well, I'd imagine in your position is just the management of those teams, keeping those relationships, not only with yourself and, and your team, but the, the, the teams themselves, how they're communicating, how well they're motivated. I, I would assume that that's also probably a big part of your work in, in all the different roles and responsibilities that you've had and 
all the different places that you've been working. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, working with people to achieve a goal together is kind of what blows my boat. So yeah, for sure. I mean, it's supporting and enabling people to lead from where they are. And that's been something I've had to learn as a leader over time. Yeah, that's a big thing, right? Is understanding what support different people need or different teams need and clarity of roles and clear objectives and the right tools and resources so they can actually accomplish them. And then watching people actually run with things, use their skills and their knowledge, be resourceful. It's pretty inspiring. Probably a lot of of leadership 101, but uh, once you get going on that, I mean, it, it becomes second nature. But in the beginning, that that's probably, well, it's one of the toughest transitions for any any leader, you know, when they're just starting out. And uh, I'd imagine now at this point, you're, yeah, you're probably fairly proficient at this, I would say, John, based on a lot of your, you know, awards and accolades and, and accomplishment, quite frankly. But I do have this other question here, and this is one that I'm thinking that 10 years ago probably would never have been asked, even maybe even five, seven years ago. And in relation to your work with the OPHA, and even probably some of your past works as well, where we're at right now, when these organizations such as yours release findings of research to the public, in the past, perhaps the public was more inclined, generally speaking, to kind of accept things. You know, it's coming from a trusted organization and okay, all right. But ostensibly nowadays, it's like, if people don't agree with this with research, for example, if it doesn't fit their worldview, they're, they're, they're much more inclined to just be like, well, you know what, I don't like this. And I'm not only going to not accept it, I'm going to undermine a lot of this. I'm going to put out things on social media that go completely against this, you know, and, and spread different sort of rumors or even flat out lies about some of these findings. Now, as a leader, that must be one, very frustrating, but then also two, it must present a series of challenges of how do you cut through that noise? How do you reach people? You know, I'd love to hear your insights on that. Oh, yeah. I just like the, it's almost like the question of the day, every day, especially you know, coming out of the acute phase of the pandemic, um, you can see that happen as pandemic fatigue came in and public health measures and restrictions and all those things were put in place. If you rewind back to the beginning of the pandemic, I think actually public health was really well profiled and, and seen to be the heroes at the beginning of the pandemic. That certainly was a narrative initially. Yeah, keeping yeah. us safe, right? And then it kind of changed and transformed. And I think there's so much going on, like there's so much to tease apart there. You know, we have the kind of power of social media and the just the sheer quantity of information that's out there. So I think, you know, alone just within the public health community, how do we align and streamline and make it understandable what we're telling the public is, is hard enough. And then you've got, you talked about, you know, people just, if it doesn't fit for them, they don't agree with it. They choose a different path. But what about misinformation? So think about all of them. And we've all heard about it, right? With foreign interference or bad actors or that kind of thing. But what about just people spreading intentionally or unintentionally the, the wrong information for whatever reason? So, that's a whole challenge unto itself. How do we, you know, it's not just about hitting people over the head with facts because that doesn't work. 
Not anymore. No, no. and so many people are disenfranchised and feel marginalized and they don't trust authority or, you know, healthcare or government or whatever. So there's so many strategies that we need to kind of tackle in order to, to do that. At OPHA, we had a number of kind of policy priorities uh, last election in Ontario. And we took those priorities and we actually added one to make our kind of our top line priorities for, for the next couple of years. And, and one of them is restore trust of the public in, in public health. Gargantian and task. so that's huge. And you started the interview off asking what is public health. So I think that's kind of first thing is to build trust with people to, to help them understand how public health is helping and supporting people to be healthier versus restricting, telling them what to do or make life harder for them. And so I think that's probably first what we need to do is raise awareness there. And then, yeah, we got to get on top of what are the kind of root causes or factors that lead people to feel disenfranchised, marginalized. How do we get them? How do we understand their experience and engage in conversation with them and make sure that we address health inequities so that people aren't on the fringe and the periphery of society and have access? you know, access and support and that kind of thing. So you can actually break down some of those barriers because if we start at a point of saying, yeah, but the research says, Chris, the research says you need to do that. And if you don't do that, if you don't get vaccinated, my wall goes up. Yeah. yeah. The wall goes up. You got to get vaccinated. That's that's what happens. If you don't get vaccinated, you're going to get sick and your risk of significant complications goes up. And, you know, like two people, two know. And so, so I think there's like societal things. I think there's things on social media we need to get at and under and, and get those corporations helping and ensuring that they also address both the misinformation and disinformation. Yeah, there, I mean, there's just so much there. Um, we need to get better at health communications so that there's not so much confusion. I think of a, a big example on the pandemic. Well, everybody said if I got vaccinated, I wouldn't get COVID-19. That's not exactly what was said, but that was what was understood by many. And then the message changed to be like, oh, well, it's going to actually not, won't necessarily prevent, it'll reduce your chances of getting it, and it will certainly reduce the kind of serious health harms or consequences of getting it. Well, it's different. That's not what you told me. So I got it, and now I don't trust you because it wasn't what you said. So... You know, there's lots of lessons learned there where, you know, that's the pandemic still ongoing, even though it's, you know, we're in a different state now. How do we take those learnings and carry them forward? Yeah, I was about to ask that one next. Yeah, I'd love to hear, to hear those insights. Continue. Sorry. Well, no, I was just going to say, how do we carry those forward so we don't repeat the mistakes and we actually do, we do our job differently. I shouldn't say better because I think everybody did the best they, they very well could. And they did a really good job through a, a, an unprecedented situation. How do we do our jobs differently so that we do, in OPHA, we support the sector, right? Like the community and public health sector. So how do we support our frontline staff and our organizations to be able to rebuild trust with the public, to be able to put out information and guidance but do so from a place of trust in the system and a place of trust in the relationships with professionals, et cetera. It's a tough one. 
So I don't have all the answers. But it is uh, a tough one. No, no, I don't think anyone does. That's why I find this question really interesting. Is is I think a lot of organizations, you know, corporations included, are still trying to figure it out. And one of the challenges with this is that you know, technology itself is is constantly evolving. You know, new forms, new channels of communication. Obviously, you know, like with social media, you have the big platforms, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all these different things. But then you have this entrant of, of AI getting into the mix now, too. And, you know, that that being the savior and I'm finger quoting for people that aren't watching the video of this, you know, like some of that information is just being scraped from the Internet. And if we have misinformation on the net, which, you know, there, there's a little bit out there, a little bit, <laughs> a lot. you know, some of that information that chat GPT is putting out to, to people. If you accept that at face value, it's going to get you in some trouble. Anyway, it, it is certainly a complex, complex situation. But uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't envy you for that one there, John, trying to, to sort through through all of that. AI is really, really interesting because I think you're right. AI is only as, as smart, evolves only to be as intelligent as what you feed it and what it learns from. So garbage in, garbage out. I was at a class at the University of Waterloo talking about how to influence policy and advocate in public health just last week. And one of the students said, wouldn't it be great if we could leverage AI to actually like a bot to be able to go and correct the misinformation that's actually put out there. So on scale, on all these social media platforms, AI could go, go out and actually correct everything where it's being, you know, where it's incorrect. So I thought that was interesting. And I think we, as a health community, along with technology experts, will have to talk about how do we utilize AI in a way to make sure that we are, in fact, helping the problem, not creating other problems by, by using AI to do what we can't do right now. Yeah, it's, it's scary, especially when you hear some of the risks with it, but it's also... I think we don't understand yet how it can be utilized for the good. So I'm interested to, to learn and, and, you know, be at the table and see if we can contribute and, and, uh, and see, but um, yeah, lots of questions. Well, in terms of, you know, some of the conversations we've had thus far and, uh, you know, getting back to this point of the meaningfulness of your work in speaking with a lot of professionals on this program, what I find is a lot of people that are successful and, and, and driven and whatnot, fairly easily can attach a, a certain philosophical level of, you know, fulfillment related to their work and what they do. And based on what you're doing, I, I'm, I'm assuming that it probably wouldn't be that hard for you. You know, like, the, again, the, the, the things that you're charged with, you know, the top of mind awareness issues for you are always centered on making people's lives better, you know, on, on, on a macro scale, you know, which obviously comes down to a micro. But I'd love to hear it from you. I mean, you know, is this something that that does come fairly easily to, to you with, you know, what you're doing? What, what would you say to that? Yeah, I would say it's a mixed bag. Like I would say some days, for sure, you feel inspired by what's happening in your work, by what you're able to accomplish, by incremental change. Ah, I shifted a decision maker's perception on a problem. Maybe we can get them down the road. Which could lead to yeah, this. Yeah, maybe they, maybe they might bring to their government a change in policy. It's funny because my my much better half, she's a nurse. And so she gets to on a daily basis, she sees the like in real time how her how her actions influence the the, the lives of her patients. For me, 
when you work in public health, when you work in prevention, you know, you may, so I had the privilege some time ago to work on and advocate for, I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of it, but anyway, it was the one, it actually bans tanning bed use for those under the age of 18. And, uh, and I remember just a, such a, a feeling of elation uh, and success with that. Another one was when we, we worked with partners to eliminate flavoring in cigarellos and, and tobacco and how that was going to protect young people. And you don't always get those kinds of wins, right? Like you, sometimes it's so incremental that it takes years to see how prevention actually is realized. And so, yeah, so I think I draw inspiration from knowing what will happen down the road, seeing, you know, even looking back 20 years and some of the work we were doing in tobacco control back then, and now seeing like the significant decreases in in tobacco use and the resulting quality of life, you know, on the upswing, the decrease of of tobacco related diseases. But you have to have that kind of long game view, because otherwise, like you can get really down and depressed and discouraged, mm. especially if if change isn't happening. Uh, quickly so yeah so I think it's about it's good old self-talk right like seeking optimism and hope in the taking action to actually change so I think that's that that process of trying to change is where I try to find my um, my motivation well, that's interesting like I said my assumption was that it would be a fairly easy thing to do but you're right I and mean, as you just spelled it out there you almost have to force yourself to reflect a little bit on on some of the, again, finger quoting, some of these small wins along the way influencing this individual who can then take the idea here and then perhaps introduce it to this person, which then leads on to something else bigger or greater. But, you know, knowing that you've at least advanced an idea to the point where it has a chance of maybe, maybe making an impact. And then ultimately, as you said, getting it to the point where it does lead to these bigger wins, again, figure quoting this, but uh, yeah, I, I guess if you are keyed in on that and you have this sort of mental framework and, and ways of interpreting your actions, you, you can find that reward, but uh, it does take a little bit of work, I guess. Some days, some days, some days not. Some days, I mean, most days I wake up in the morning and I feel super jazzed about the day ahead. But, you know, like any work, you you have challenges and um, and you gotta yeah you gotta like do that reminding and resetting and uh, and then just looking for the silver lining as cheesy as that sounds. Well, we are you know going on a fairly nice clip here, and I do have this segment here, a water cooler story segment, and here I just ask you know, guests to indulge the listeners with a story related to their profession. So I'd love to hear what you have for us today, John. A water cooler story. Well, you know. The water cooler that I worked at in, in various offices, it was more the, like the juicy gossip uh, going on uh, about who, who was doing what and, <laughs> and uh, who was getting it. Well, those stories are fine, too. I mean, yeah, no, I can't tell tales at a school on this podcast. I think, you know, in terms of a personal story, and maybe it's a bit of an evolution for me of learning, because I think back to my, my undergrad thesis which was examining alcohol use in First Nations communities. And I was, what, like 
2021. And so very naively walking into a very welcomed by folks at Six Nations Reserve in uh, Brantford, Ontario. And, uh, and I got to spend time with community members learning. I had this like project that was identified from by my advisor and myself, like, let's have a learning project. And I look back now and I feel horrified about, I, I think the folks that I spoke with humored me well and helped me to learn, right? It was probably as much a, a personal growth experience as it was an academic one. You know, I got to meet with community members and understand their lives. And I came from a very narrow kind of approach, not really understanding his history. You know, I remember taking a tour of the residential school on that reserve, which I think was closed. One of the last ones that closed in 1994. I had absolutely no context for this. I'd never learned about it growing up, the, the weight or magnitude. I learned about it through, um, you know, the, the individual community member. He was a knowledge, traditional knowledge keeper who took us on a tour. Anyway, I, I, I don't even like at all looking back on that thesis because it's painful to read kind of very simplistic uh, understanding of a 21-year-old trying to understand um, substance use in, in one First Nations community. And, and really from a place of privilege of a white, white person having absolutely no idea and approaching it all wrong, right? Approaching it from a stance of a problem. How does that quote problem come about and what are the solutions and that kind of thing, as opposed to starting way back. So I've had, I've had the great patience from many First Nation Inuit Métis leaders and community members. And I got to work with young people in a number of First Nations communities in Ontario going back about 15 years ago. And I've learned a lot, which is humbling because it makes you look back at the, the beliefs you had or the choices you made or the assumptions you made as well. And I think that has been transformative as well. And I think, you know, I always, you know, before we started the interview today, I said, oh, you know, there are, there are times when I just, I don't have the right words. I don't know, like, learning about reconciliation and what reconciliation meant and um, how much work we have to do in our society in order to reconcile the, the hundreds of years of harms um, to our Indigenous communities here in Canada. You know, I, I don't want to say the wrong thing and I don't want to ask the wrong naive question, but, but I've always humbled and I've always been, I've always felt super privileged by work, working with Indigenous leaders and health leaders. Walk on that journey of, you know, from ignorance to, to learning. And so I think for me, it's a reminder that I, I have and we have so far to go. And so what's hopeful is I think through reconciliation, our organization, individuals within our organization, you know, it goes far, so far beyond land acknowledgement, that kind of thing. It's really, how can our work enable or provide an opportunity to work with Indigenous communities to be able to support and use our position of privilege or influence to be able to help to potentially better the health of Indigenous communities? So how can we do that? So that, for me, is like not a very juicy, gossipy, water cooler topic, but I think it's one of 
that ground like has to be grounding to to think of where I started and just, I I don't feel like I've come that far but that process of learning and want and kind of earnest nature of asking questions and listening more than assuming yeah no I think there's some valuable lessons within that story you just going kind to of spell them out there but you know one is just I think for any professional is reflecting on the past a little bit, you know, and, and it's easy kind of to reflect on, on the wins again, bringing up that word, but also too, I mean, it's, it's really important to, to, to look back on, you know, where maybe you, you're missing the mark perhaps, you know, early on in, in your career. And we all do, we all make these mistakes, but learning from them, you know, learning from them. And that, that, that's power, right? That's certainly power. You can understand where you were at within your life and maybe why you had these certain assumptions and, maybe saying, well, here's some possible solutions, some answers without fully grasping or fully understanding, you know, the, the, the true needs. But in understanding that and, and you know, being in your youth and, and why you were going about it that way, it kind of empowers you now to be like, well, that's not the approach that I would have at this point. And this is how I would go about it now. And I think just that acknowledgement is, you know, it allows for that personal growth to take place. It allows for that your ability to to change your approach for the future and how you would go about things, you know, down the line in, in a similar situation or something maybe very different, but you, you have these learnings that you can kind of take with you. So you know, I, I really appreciate that story. I think it, it, it speaks to that point. I mean, at least that's kind of how I took it. Thank you. Well, it, it, it's sometimes a bit cringeworthy to think of, but it helps me to think that I shouldn't be the lead, right? Like I should be the one asking and seeing if there is even a place for me to be able to support. And I say me, but it may be me, maybe my organization, maybe a health system, whatever it may be. Yeah, it helps ground me. Yeah, I think that's, but that's a really common issue, I think, for for anyone, and especially for for young leaders or for people that eventually make their way into positions such as yours, executive leadership. You know, I think initially the assumption is that we have to show that what we know and you go in with the answers, or at least you think you have the answers. And, and that becomes part of the expectation, at least in, in a young person's mind. But as you speak with people that have advanced in their careers, there is that noticeable shift where it's a lot of listening. They just listen, they listen, they listen, they listen, and then they speak, you know, when, when it's warranted, when they're allowed to. And that's where the action takes place. That's where the true change is allowed to occur oftentimes. So I think it's, there's that distinction between the two and those approaches. And for anyone, I think, you know, we, we, a lot of us have those experiences throughout our careers. We go in, you know, guns a blazing. Well, I've got all the answers for you. What, what do you need? What do you need? Well, maybe that person just needs you to listen. And, and then from there, you can kind of you know, grow things out. So yeah, I think it's, it's a nice reminder. So yeah, again, I do appreciate you sharing that. I do have one last segment here I would like to get into, John. It's a crystal ball segment, as the name implies, we're looking towards the future, trends, predictions, so on and so forth. And we did lightly touch upon a topic that uh, I do want to ask about again, and it's this notion of technology. As far as, you know, how your organization is growing, whether you want to or not, you know, the, the, despite the challenges that it presents in, as far as like social media and, and tech within that realm, you kind of have to learn to live with it, right? Don't we all? So I'd love to know your approach, you know, maybe the OPHA as well, like how you are going about things maybe or have 
you know, ideas of how you can embrace technology further to, to advance your agendas or your, your causes, if you will. I first think about, you know, the last three years and uh, having barely survived uh, working from home uh, with online school happening and uh, my children losing their minds and me also nearly losing my mind. <laughs> In due course. Yeah, yes. I, I, I think about how quickly we, uh, like many systems and organizations, have shifted very quickly uh, how we approach our work. You know, there's the obvious ones, which is how do we work virtually in an effective way? And what are the tools and platforms for networking and collaboration and meeting? How do we, you know, uh, how do we actually build relationships and uh, and then work together? So th- those are the obvious ones that I think has transformed the way we do our work. But I also think that it has allowed us, I mean, technology can be a barrier, especially if you're talking about, like, think about northern and rural or remote communities and we may think that technology increases accessibility allows us to provide care and support and solutions in lots of different ways but not for everyone you know how are we able to do use technology but also keeping in mind that aspect of of health equity and so how do we um, in, ensure that we, we aren't excluding people by using technology? OPHA is interesting because one, one of the things that's really exciting that we do is we provide training and capacity building within the sector. And so part of that is virtual conferences, asynchronous e-learning, uh, so self-directed learning. And, you know, enabling also collaborative, online collaborative spaces, those kinds of things. So, so we use all of those things on a kind of weekly, monthly basis to engage the people. It allows us to get greater reach. You know, you're always questioning like that. Is it a greater reach? So it's a surface level reach or is it a deeper reach? And so we certainly can get more people in the tent. We have a, a virtual conference because people from all over can, can, attend without having to fly in or travel or pay for accommodation. And then it also allows us to, you know, to provide things that are scalable, lower cost, and still have some decent results. So um, one example is we just launched a called Public Health and Planning 101. How do you take the built environment, like how we design communities from planning, urban planning to transportation, to where certain products are sold in, in communities. How does that influence health? And we did that on an e-learning platform. And so, you know, that seems pretty basic. Like people have been doing e-learning for some time, but it's certainly one way that we used to be doing these things in person, traveling around. And so, you know, there's pros and cons, but we've been able to increase the scope of reach and impact of offering them. You know, that's part of it. I think we have lots more we need to learn. We talked about AI. You know, we're a, you know, we're a smaller organization association supporting a huge province. We're supporting the whole country. So we really have to rely on technology to facilitate that work. So yeah, so always looking for the next best tool. Uh, I had like a real life experiment in one of our conferences. I used 
something like a product that was a whiteboard, virtual whiteboard, but it was like it was a 275 person workshop. And so I had 24 whiteboards all on the same, like they were all in the same working space. Wow, that's pretty cool. It was fun. It was like chaos and people were organized chaos. And people were like sticky noting and having discussions. So they're meeting in person. But then some people were like, oh, I see what they're putting over on their whiteboard. They were like, I'm going to push my whiteboard over and I'm going to put my ideas on there. So it was like a fun, creative experiment. And people overwhelmingly thought it was positive, even though it was a little messy. So, you know, there are cool things you can do with technology. And we'll continue to do that to be able to, again, how do we strengthen you know, those working in community and public health, how do those tools help us to do our job better? Well, I've got to say, John, I mean, we have just flown through this conversation. It feels like we just got started, but here we are just eclipsing the hour mark now. And, uh, you know, at least for myself, I, I feel like I've gained a much better understanding of one, the, the work that you do, and certainly the significance of it and the importance of it, but a deeper insight into it all. And uh, I can't thank you enough for, for sharing all of that. And uh, it's been a true pleasure. And I thank you so much for taking some time and joining the program. Likewise, Chris. It was really, really great. It was nice chatting with you today. For those interested in learning more about John and his work, you can do so via the OPHA, Ontario Public Health Association website, or via LinkedIn. And for reference, all this information, including the links, will be in the show notes. And also, if you like today's show, please be sure to tell a friend and share. You can also show further support by rating, reviewing, and subscribing wherever you access your podcasts. And lastly, head on over to YouTube. I do have a channel over there, and I have video highlights of the conversations, so you can kind of take it in in a different manner. And if you are over there, as mentioned off the top, I'd really appreciate a like or subscribe. Now, finally, don't forget to join us on the next episode of Life As A, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living.